Please stand for the reading of God's Word. As Pastor Bruce said, we'll be beginning in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Um, if you need a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and we'll be beginning on page 1,127. Uh, as he said, this is a new series, and with the first sermon being entitled, When You Don't See Eye to Eye. So, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, follow along as I read. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. For then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you for this opportunity to gather in worship and in community. Um, thank you for this opportunity, God. I pray that you would bless Bruce, Pastor Bruce, with the words to speak, that you would speak through him and challenge our hearts, that we may help and grow in unity as a church and as a body of Christ. God, I pray all these things in your name. Amen. This past summer, I had the opportunity to go to the Royals game. How many have been to the Royals game this last summer? Yeah, several of you. And uh, so anyways, had the opportunity, my wife and I, to go to the game with Kevin and Andrea Barnes and another couple. And uh, so once we got to the K, we found our seats and we sat down. And like most people, you sit down and you, you kind of scan the whole field. You overlook the whole field. And it was really easy in this case because we were in the nosebleed section of the K. And so you could just see down everywhere. But one thing in particular caught my attention, this go-around. And it was way out in right field, right above the right field stands, was this huge, gigantic banner. And at the top of the banner, it said, Code of Conduct. And then underneath it, it had all these uh, bullet points on kind of these rules that the, the, the Kansas City Royals wanted you to abide by so that fans could get along with one another while they were at the K. It was the Code of Conduct, the Fan Code of Conduct. And so I'm like, wow, that's kind of interesting. I've never seen that before. Not that I've gone to a lot of Royals games, but I've never seen that. So I wonder, man, do I wonder if they have a, quote, an official fan code of conduct on their website? And so when I got home, I Googled it, and sure enough, they do. It's on their website. And then I got to thinking, I wonder, well, the Kansas City Chiefs, 
do the Chiefs have an official fan code of conduct? How many do you think they do? Sure enough, you go to the Chiefs uh, uh, website and you will find an official Chiefs fan code of conduct. In fact, it says, and I quote, the Chiefs are committed for creating a safe, comfortable, and enjoyable experience for their fans, both inside Arrowhead Stadium and throughout our parking areas. And when attending an event at Arrowhead Stadium, all fans should be aware of and comply with the fan code of conduct. And then it gives all these bullet points of behaviors they expect the fans to, to, to do, such as behavior that is unruly, disruptive, or illegal in nature. You will be asked to leave. <laughs> uh, intoxication or other signs of an alcohol or substance abuse impairment. You'll be asked to leave if you don't abide by this. Offensive language, obscene gestures, uh, interference with the progress of the event, and on and on it goes. In fact, it's like 10 or 12 bullet points of these rules that the Chiefs have for their fan code of conduct. That's interesting. In fact, what it tells me is that both the Kansas City Royals and the Kansas City Chiefs, they recognize a need for a code of conduct, a list of rules that, when followed, will help create an enjoyable experience for all of their fans. Now, believe it or not, this is nothing new. In fact, the Apostle Paul implemented a sort of code of conduct in the church at Rome. Paul knew that even Christ followers, believers in Jesus Christ, Christians, need a code of conduct for getting along in the church and staying united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so at the beginning of Romans 12, Paul lays out this if we can call it this, this code of conduct for Christ followers. But he does so with one noticeable difference between what other codes of conduct might be, such as the royals and the chiefs. And notice this, in your notes, I invite you to pull out those notes in your bulletin and follow along or follow along on the screen behind me. But notice the difference. Here's Paul's code of conduct for getting along. It is based on love and not rules. Paul's code of conduct is based on love, the law of love, whereas the chief in royal's code of conduct is based on a list of rules. Now, for example, Paul's code of conduct based on love, we see in Romans 12, 9, and 10, because he really begins this code of conduct in Romans chapter 12. And you find here in Romans 12, 9 and 10 where he says, let love be genuine. And he's speaking to believers, by the way. He's speaking to the church at Rome. And he says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then you skip over to chapter 13 in verses 8 and 9. Paul continues with the law of love here. And he says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, we might think of them as God's laws, God's rules, 
are, and we're familiar with these commandments, the Ten Commandments, such as you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. And here we see the basis of his code of conduct. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So rather than lay down another law, another rule, what does Paul do? Paul appeals to love as the basis now for his code of conduct in the church. You see, the reality is, as Christians, we don't always get along. That's just reality. We hold different opinions, and disagreements are sure to arise even within the body of Christ. But that doesn't mean we always need to eliminate our differences. But it does mean that we should always seek to glorify God by loving each other even in our differences. Now, let me just give you the historical background briefly here of the church at Rome in which Paul is writing to. In Paul's day, Rome was the the center of the world. That's the capital of the Roman Empire. In fact, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome. And in the first century, that statement was certainly true. All roads did lead to Rome. And that meant that the the city had become kind of a melting pot where people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities mingled together. And as you might imagine, when the gospel came into Rome, it crossed many of those cultural and ethnic lines. And therefore, because of the power of the gospel... When people believe, it saves, it changes people. And so when the gospel came, listen, many of these people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, the church at Rome now, where these people attended together to worship their Savior Jesus Christ, it consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. And when we speak of the word Gentiles, it's everybody that's non-Jewish. And so it is a melting pot of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different races, you name it, at the church at Rome. And so Paul's writing to a very diverse group of people in the church, which is a wonderful thing. But human nature, being what it is, it's not surprising that this diverse group of people had trouble getting along. As you might guess, the church at Rome was anything but one big happy family. It was big, it was a family, family of God, but it was far from happy due to the judgmental attitudes towards one another. So, here's the question. What was causing all the fuss in the church at Rome? What was the source of contention within this body of Christ, this body of believers here? Well, notice this in your notes. The contention here, the church at Rome, it was divided over special diets and special days. You see, the big issue in the church at Rome was whether it was okay for a Christian to eat meat that might have been offered to an idol before it was sent to Bob the Butcher. Some members in the church, listen, they had no issue with this at all. But others thought it was a sin to eat that meat. And so they followed a a very strict diet. 
other members thought it was a sin not to observe some of the Jewish holy days and even to keep the Sabbath like they did in the Old Testament. But another group felt they could indulge in ribeyes and worship on Sundays, and it was okay. The problem was this, though. People from both sides, it didn't matter what side you were on, people from both sides went way too far and began to impose their freedoms or their scruples on others in the church. Now, the easy solution would have been what? Well, the easy solution to all this would have been to form two churches. I mean, that's the American way of doing things. I mean, the church of the carnivores who worship on Sunday and the first church of the vegetarians who worship on the Sabbath. Just split them, divide them, and form two. But I want you to see, I want you to notice what Paul's concern was here. Notice this in your notes. Paul's overriding concern was not who is right and who's wrong. Rather, Paul's ultimate concern when he's writing these words to the church at Rome was all about keeping unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, this whole section here in Romans, you got to understand, Paul is moving towards something. This section here is moving towards this vision of both Jews and Gentiles. In other words, all people groups, all nations, everyone united in giving praise to God through Jesus Christ. That's what he's moving towards, and that's what you see at the end of Romans chapter 15 happening. Essential oils. Essential oils are a big, day to, big thing today. How many of you use essential oils? Don't be embarrassed. Yeah, all right, raise your hand, yeah. There's, you know, it's a big deal. There's essential oils for anxiety, allergies, headaches, sleep, depression, mosquitoes, etc. I mean that you use and even you use them mostly in diffusers, and they're not just for women. Men actually use essential oils in their beards to make your beard soft. And so they're, they're a big thing to get today. But are they really essential? Can you not live without them? I mean, after all, that's a lofty claim. Essential oils. I mean, why not maybe helpful oils? Or not quite essential, but still wonderful oils. Because scripture shows us what's essential. That which we cannot live without. And scripture says what's essential is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now at times, churches, like the church at Rome, even like our church here at LifeBridge, listen... We can lose sight of what's essential and begin majoring on the minors. But a gospel-centered church makes the major thing the main thing in all things. And what we see here in Romans 14 and 15 is Paul is teaching us. He is showing us how to stay united in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to actually, at the same time, give freedom to one another in non-essentials. This is why Paul tells us. 
Going back to Romans chapter 12, in verse 16, he says, hey, live in harmony with one another. And not just live in harmony with people who agree with you. That's easy. But to live in harmony with believers who actually practice non-essentials differently than you. In other words, don't make a big deal out of non-essentials. And in this case, here in context of Romans 14, it's all about special diets and special days. Don't make a big deal out of them to the point that you would disrupt or you might even divide unity in the gospel. Instead, and here's where we're moving to. Here's what we will see in the last sermon in this series here. We should let our pursuits, let our ambition, this should be our consuming desire here, is to be what Paul says here in Romans 15, verses 5 through 7, where he prays in essence, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in light of that, Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That is the goal for every believer. That is the goal of our church here at LifeBridge. A fact, a mark of God's love is that we welcome one another despite our differences of opinions on non-essentials. Now, what I want to do for the rest of our time here is basically unpack a little bit in the first half of Romans 14 because what Paul does in these first 12 verses is he lays out for us. He tells us, here's then how to get along when you don't see eye to eye on non-essentials. Number one, he tells us, welcome those who disagree with you. Welcome those who disagree with you. Why? Because God has welcomed you and them. Look what Paul writes again in verses 1 through 2. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And then if you go to Romans 15, the next chapter, and immediately in verse 1, you see where Paul says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. Now again, as a reminder, Paul is specifically addressing believers in Jesus Christ. He's not talking to those who are outside of the faith or even outside of the church. He's talking to the church, believers, people who have come to saving faith in Christ. And yes, while we want to welcome all people, even unbelievers in our church, and welcome them with open arms, understand the context here of who Paul is addressing. And immediately he identifies two groups of believers that we are to welcome. And that is the weak and the strong. And again, as a reminder, each group consisted of both Gentile and Jewish believers. So two kinds of believers to welcome. Why? Because God welcomes them. And so the first is what Paul refers to as the weak or immature believers in the faith. 
That is, they haven't fully grasped yet the extent of their freedom in Christ. Now, please understand, weekend faith here does not refer to the authenticity of one's faith. The weak, in this case, have saving faith in Jesus Christ. They are believers. They're Christ followers. Rather, this phrase, weak in faith, it refers to one's convictions about one's faith allows them or permits him or her to do. You see, the weak, in this case, they don't believe their faith permits them to practice certain things. For example, in the church at Rome, some of the weaker Gentile believers were converted from pagan idolatry in its rituals. And so they felt that any contact with anything remotely related to this past, including eating meat that had been previously offered to idols and then sold in the marketplace, it tainted them with sin. Some of the weaker Jewish believers, they were unable to to let go of the religious ceremonies and even the rituals of their past. And so they felt compelled to continue observing some of the Old Testament regulations regarding kosher diets and holy days. Both groups, understand, are believers in Christ who felt obligated to obey rules and laws concerning what they ate and when they worshipped. They felt this was an appropriate response to God's grace in their life at salvation. And while this position is certainly understandable, it wasn't necessarily biblical. In fact, that's why Paul's position, and he states this later on, is actually with the next group, who he refers to as the strong. And notice who the strong are here. They are mature believers in the faith. They can exercise their freedom in Christ with a clear conscience. Now, let me qualify this. That's strong here, that word. It doesn't mean that as a Christ follower, you can just go do whatever you want to do in the name of, I got a strong conscience. I'm free. I got liberty in Christ. I can do whatever I want to do because I have a strong conscience. No, that's not the idea here. It means... Actually, an informed conscience. Informed by what? Informed by the scriptures. Informed by God's word and what God's word has to say on this particular non-essential issue. Now, obviously, uh, the stronger believers understood their liberty in Christ a little bit better. And as a result, they were not enslaved to observing these special diets and special days. Which meant, as you can see, that these two groups, the weak and the strong, didn't see eye to eye on their liberty in Christ. And as you might imagine, this caused some contention in the church at Rome. At the same time, we also need to understand that both the strong and the weak believed in moral norms. What do I mean by that? Well, that is, they believed in things like stealing is a sin, sexual immorality is sin, just like adultery, greed, lust, and murder is sin. In other words, we're not talking about those things in the Bible where God has specifically laid it out for us. This is wrong. This, don't do this. Don't follow this. Don't live this way. And those things, 
He says it's okay. But they disagree now on certain cultural practices. What Paul calls here opinions, or in some other translations, it even uses the phrase disputable matters there in verse 1. Both refer to that which is debatable or doubtful. You might think of it this way. It's those gray areas of the Christian life. A disputable matter is a difference of opinion between Christians on how to apply their liberty in Christ. And make no mistake. Listen, every one of us here, we all have personal opinions when it comes to these disputable matters or non-essential issues in the Christian life. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But notice what else he says. But not to quarrel over opinions. You see, some Christians, have you found them to be the case? They, they love to argue. In fact, they think it's their life calling to argue on everything. It's good to be passionate about truth. Listen, and as Christ followers, we are advocates of the truth, God's truth. And it's good to be passionate about truth. But when we think that everything, including non-essentials, is equally important, we can end up being argumentative, divisive, and especially judgmental. And this judgmental attitude, in particular, was killing the church at Rome, as verse 3 tells us. And basically what Paul says here is that the meat eaters were looking down on the vegetarians, and the vegetarians were condemning the meat eaters. But Paul says, don't quarrel over such issues. Don't quarrel over opinions. Don't disrupt and divide unity in the gospel over such disputable matters. Instead, what does Paul say? He says, welcome one another without passing judgment on one's opinions in these non-essential issues. And that word welcome, it is a strong word that Paul uses. In fact, it means to, to accept to embrace, to, to receive into one's fellowship. So think of it, receiving them into your home. You're opening the front door. You're welcoming them into your home. You're saying, here, have my seat, my chair where I sit. You're welcome to open the refrigerator and get anything you want. You're welcoming them into your fellowship and more importantly, into your heart. That is the idea behind this word, welcome. In other words, we're to do more than just to put up with somebody we don't agree with. We are to welcome one another with love and grace, whether we see eye to eye on such disputable matters. You say, why? Well, notice the key phrase at the end of verse 3. Paul tells us why when he says, For God has welcomed him. And since God welcomes people, 
solely on the basis of their faith in Jesus Christ, so should we. In fact, Paul goes on and he asks it in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? In other words, who are we to reject the person whom God has welcomed? In fact, by not welcoming him or her, what we are doing, we are actually implying with our actions that God's acceptance of him or her is now misguided. God's wrong in welcoming them. But since God's acceptance of that person is not mistaken, we then should extend God's grace towards those who disagree with you on such non-essential matters by welcoming them as well. After all, Paul thinks, we know that because his words are revealed to us, he thinks that both groups should be accepted. At the same time, please listen, that does not mean he's neutral on the issue at hand. As Paul makes clear, the, quote, strong Christians in Rome were those who, were, who rightly understood their freedom from the ritual requirements of the law, while the, quote, weak rich Christians were those who mistakenly perceive themselves to still be bound by these ritual requirements. But Paul's saying, you know what? There's liberty here. There's actually, more importantly, there's charity here for weaker Christians, given time for them to come to a fuller understanding of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so at the end of the day, though, Paul does think that the weak are wrong in their position when it comes to these disputable matters. Why? Because requiring things that the Bible doesn't require, having a stricter conscience in non-essential matters doesn't show that a person is a stronger Christian, but rather a weaker one. Now, Paul is actually, he's a master here because he's actually very, very subtle in this critique. You say, why? Why would he be so subtle? Why wouldn't he come out with guns blazing? After all, man, Paul, you're right. Tell these people they're wrong. No, 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 it's not what Paul does. Not at all. Why? Because Paul, listen to me, he's mainly concerned about the strong's lack of love in this particular case. Not the weak's lack of understanding on their liberty in Christ, on these non-essential issues. Therefore, Paul's main goal here was not to correct the weaker Christian's errors, but rather to foster unity in the gospel despite the differences of opinions. Paul's practicing what he's preaching, in other words. He's saying, yes, I'm right, but it's not a big deal that I'm right. Why? Because there are non-essential matters here that we're dealing with. What matters most, Paul's saying, is keeping unity in the gospel among the body of Christ. So how do we get along when you don't see eye to eye? Well, the first and foremost is you welcome those who disagree with you. Why? Because God 
hath welcomed you and them. And second, number two, you follow your own conscience in disputable matters. Jesus is your Lord. In fact, according to Michael Byrd, there are basically three levels of importance. Number one, it's matters essential for salvation. Number two are matters that are important to the Christian faith in the church, but they're not essential for salvation. And then number three, Michael Byrd says that there are matters of indifference that are basically they're non-essentials or disputable matters. Now, obviously, it's this third level that tends to cause the most contention in churches even today. Just as it did in the church at Rome when it came to these diets and days. Now, I'm sure you can come up with a list of, quote, disputable matters which Christians are divided on today. But what's important is not what's on your list, but rather unity in the gospel. And in order to make his point about uniting and not dividing Paul focuses our attention, did you notice this, on whom? The Lord. Just notice how many times Paul mentions the Lord right here in verses 5 through 9. Look at it again. Where Verse 5, Paul says one person esteems one day is better than another. And then he goes on. And you read through those verses and here's what you will find. That seven times Paul mentions the Lord. As Christians, what this means is we only have one master, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. What is it that makes food holy or a day holy? It's the fact that we relate it to the Lord. And so we could ask the question this way. Do you want to eat ribeye steak? Paul says, eat your steak in honor of the Lord. Do you want to be a vegetarian? Paul would say to you, eat your bean sprouts in honor of the Lord. Do you want to have a glass of wine with your steak dinner? Paul would say to you, drink your wine in honor of the Lord. Do you abstain from alcohol? If so, Paul would say to you, rejoice and abstain in honor of the Lord. Paul says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He said, what does that mean? It means we're not to just automatically adopt other people's convictions in these non-essential issues. But rather, we, each one individually, we are to give careful thought, we are to give prayerful consideration as we make up our own minds in these disputable areas. In whatever position you take, The concern should always be the same for both the strong and the weak here. And that is what? To honor the Lord Jesus Christ with our actions, our beliefs, and our behaviors. Listen, most of all, Paul is exhorting us to live in such a way that everyone knows that you are a Christ follower. That everyone knows that the Lordship of Jesus Christ has preeminence over your life. Here's the problem today, though, if I may be so blunt, is that today a lot of Christians, they, here's what I find, they want to exercise their liberty in Christ on certain issues, cultural issues, but they want to do so without actually being informed 
by Scripture. They're convinced by culture on this issue, this issue, whatever, and they know they have liberty in Christ. So I'm free to go do this. And technically, in a sense, you are. But you're clueless as to what the Bible has to say on these issues. You haven't done your time yet to study and read God's Word and to be informed by Scripture. I'll give you just one little example, and I'm running out of time, but it's a pertinent issue. And I'll give it as a personal example. And Jack, I hope you don't mind. Last year, he came to me. He said, Dad, I want a tattoo. I said, no. And then he said, why? And I said, Jack, here's the deal. You go study God's word on what God has to say about tattoos. Does God's word have anything to say about tattoos? You go come back to me after you study God's word, what God's word has to say about the body. Do you realize God does have to say something about tattoos, and God says a whole lot more about our bodies? And I didn't tell Jack that a tattoo is right or wrong. That's not the issue. It's not the issue. Is it? It's not. But see, here's what happens. We're, we're convinced culturally, I want a tattoo. Why? Because it's cool, man. Everybody's got one. I want one. I just want a little small one, Dad. I just want a cross. You know, let it be reflective of my following Christ and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, but you're not, you're, con- you're convinced culturally, but you haven't taken the time to be informed by Scripture. Go study God's Word. Come back to me and we'll talk about it. Do you hear what I'm saying? On some of these disputable issues, are we informed by Scripture? Have we taken the time to do our homework? Do we know why we have freedom in Christ to do this and participate in it? Can we defend it from Scripture? It's sad to say most Christians can't. They just know I got liberty in Christ, and the culture is in on it. I want to be there too. And that's our basic reasoning. I got liberty in Christ. Yeah, I know, but are you informed by Scripture? Man, my time's getting away from me, so let me quickly go through this here. Two ways to put this into practice when it comes to disputable matters. First of all, assume that other believers are partaking or refraining from disputable matters for the glory of God. I want you to see, did you notice how gracious Paul is to both sides here? Did you, know, did you get this? Paul actually assumes, he assumes, he makes an assumption, and I know in this day and age you should never assume anything. But Paul's making an assumption here. Paul assumes that both sides, that is the weak and the strong, are exercising their freedoms in Christ or their restrictions for the glory of God. Paul makes that assumption about both. We ought to as well. Instead of always spinning it, is our first assumption is, They're just not doing, they're blah, blah, blah. And then number two, second, accept that both the weak and strong believers can please the Lord even while holding different views on disputable disputable matters. Listen, they have different positions, obviously, the strong and the weak, but they have the same motivation, and that is to honor the Lord. They both do what they do for God's glory. 
The one who loves ribeye steak and the one who loves bean sprouts please the Lord. Both thank God for the food they receive and both live out their convictions as an expression of their devotion to Christ. And so Paul's point is this. People with opposing views on these issues can both please the Lord. So how do we get along when you don't see eye to eye? You follow your own conscience in disputable matters. And you give others, by the way, the freedom to do the same. Number three, don't judge those who disagree with you. Or don't judge those you disagree with. Why? Because we will each answer to God. Notice the two questions in verse 10. To the weaker Christian, Paul asks, why do you pass judgment on your brother? And then to the stronger Christian, Paul asks, or you, why do you despise your brother? And this takes us back to what Paul said in verse 3, where he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And immediately we see two wrong responses. The first of which is, don't criticize the weaker believer whose conscience is easily offended and limits their liberty in Christ. Don't criticize them. Because here's the temptation of the strong. Their temptation is to criticize the weak, to despise the weak for being so restrictive. And they say, why are you requiring rules that are not in the Bible? But they do so with a sense of arrogance, condescension. The second wrong response is, and it's given to the weak, don't condemn the stronger believer whose conscience is more informed and exercises their liberty in Christ. Because here's the temptation for the weak. That is to condemn the strong for their more flexible conscience. They say, man, you guys are way too worldly. You're too liberal. You're, man, you're living like the culture too much. And so you can see that the stronger Christian is prone to criticize, while the weaker Christian is prone to condemn. But here's what I want you to see here. Don't miss this. Both these attitudes, both of them, both condemning and criticizing, are virtually the same. Why? Because they both involve passing judgment. which implies coming to a negative conclusion on the basis of one's outward behavior in such disputable matters. And passing judgment in this context, it soon leads to looking down on other believers, thinking that you're superior to others because, A, you do things they don't do, or B, you don't do things they do. Either way, you end up seeing yourself as just a a little bit better than your brother or sister in Christ. And Paul says that that attitude is wrong. At the same time, at the same time, listen to me, please understand, this does not mean, this does not mean we are not to use discernment. When it comes to, for example, our association with other people or what is right and wrong or even doctrine. In these areas, we must, quote, 
judge according to the standards of God's word. Nor does this mean, nor is Paul saying that we should refrain from judging a believer who is engaging in obvious sin. Folks, listen to me. In this day and age, we need to hear this truth. It it is not wrong to be concerned about the spiritual well-being of another Christian who has fallen into sin. According to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul tells us that we, we are called to approach them. We are called to go to them and help correct them, to even rebuke them for the purpose to restore them in their relationship with the Lord. And so that's not, in the world's eyes, judging as somehow that's a negative thing we're doing, a fellow Christian. No, that's being a loving brother or sister to them. What Paul is focusing on here is judgmental attitudes. He's saying, don't pass judgment on others when it comes to these disputable issues. Why? Because God is our judge. And we will each answer to him. Look what it says in verses 10 through 12. Look at it quickly here. He says, for we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Three times here, Paul reminds us that we will stand before God Almighty and we will give an account of our lives. And so when you choose a position on a debatable matter, listen, we need to do so with the sovereign Lord in mind. God is your judge. And you will stand before him to give an account of your life, even on these issues. So that's the first part of Paul's code of conduct here in Romans 14. And as we work our way through the second part next Sunday, here's what I want to leave you with. I want you to see the goal that Paul is leading us toward. The goal of every believer is here. Notice it in your notes. And that is to magnify the gospel by welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed you. I'll leave you with this thought. Our goal is not simply to stop judging those who are free or to stop looking down on those who are strict. Listen, our ultimate goal here as Christ followers at LifeBridge, here it is. It is to magnify the gospel by welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these searching words which make us all feel a bit guilty. We have all been guilty of this, whether we are strong or weak. We have judged our brother and sister and perhaps even condemned him. So forgive us for that, Lord. Help us to see that we have been usurping your place as judge in doing so. Help us to stop that. Help us to begin to answer only for ourselves before your throne and to uphold and pray for our brother and sister if we feel they need it. Lord, grant to us that understanding of truth that sets us free. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen.